And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. If you've heard the name Tom Vilsack a lot lately, it's because he was widely uh, speculated on as a choice as Hillary Clinton's vice presidential nominee. He's the former governor of Iowa, two-term governor of Iowa. Uh, He's been the agriculture secretary under President Obama for the last eight years, longest-serving member of the Obama cabinet. He also is a friend of mine. I worked in his uh, campaigns in Iowa, and he's got an extraordinary incredible story Uh, and we talked about his life and where we are today in Philadelphia during the Democratic National Convention. Tom Vilsack, old friend, Good to see you again. I know your personal story. In fact, when we first met, when I came to talk to you, when you were considering running for governor and you were 20 points behind, one of the reasons that I was so eager to see you was because I had read a lot about you and this incredible story. But a lot of folks don't know it. So tell tell me a little bit about it, your 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 childhood well i you know i consider myself one of the luckiest people uh, alive uh start out life in an orphanage uh, you, did you take that from lou Gehrig? is that yeah yeah yes. it's I, 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 <laughs> I wish i i wish i'd been able to hit as well as he yeah uh yeah i started out an orphanage that was uh in pittsburgh pennsylvania um and you were my, just left there right deposited there well my my uh my birth mother uh came into this facility in September of 1950 and assumed the name of Gloria, which was not her real name. Uh, she was 23 years old, uh, I find, I, I know, and she was a, a secretary, uh, probably Irish. Um, and she was, I, I was born in December, and she stayed uh, at this facility. It was a kind of, fond, it was called a fondling home, a Rosalia fondling home. She stayed there until uh, January. And I was uh, I was baptized with a different first name, Kenneth. And uh, she left in January, and then in uh, March, my uh, adopted parents, my, my mom. And did dad, you ever have you ever did you ever meet your birth mother? No, no. Uh, the information I have about this came from a letter that was sent to me uh, in two thousand and six when I briefly uh, ran uh, for president. Mm-hmm. Uh, the falling home or the or the orphanage decided to let me know what they could tell me legally uh the records are sealed uh and so i this is the extent of which of what i know what'd you think when you got that letter well i was surprised uh because i, I always had to figure that my my birth mother was a teenager uh for some reason i that was that was sort of stuck in my head uh and the notion that uh my first name was actually kenneth my mom uh my adopted mom would never tell me anything about the circumstances of my adoption uh, she was very quiet about that, but just before she died, she had cancer, she had brain cancer. I sort of, uh, I think I pushed her into finally acknowledging and giving me some tidbit of information. And she said that, well, I'll tell you one thing that you were Kenneth, you were baptized hmm. Kenneth. Uh, so they changed my name obviously, uh, and, uh, was adopted into family and my family, uh, it was a fairly prominent Pittsburgh family. The, my great grandfather, uh, Leopold Vilsack founded the Iron City Brewing Company and was a, considered to be a, a very, very wealthy individual, um, sort of um, very successful, owned a lot of businesses and that type of thing. Um, and over the course of time, um, his, his son uh, was reasonably successful. My dad was a, had a tough time in business. Uh, he was a real estate guy, uh, and uh, because of a series of programs, uh, he began to lose a lot of the territory that he was uh, responsible for in terms of renting and managing and selling. And so his business basically um, became very troubled. Uh, And about the time that was happening, um, both of my parents were hospitalized with various uh, illnesses and so forth. And my mom then began to have serious problems with uh, prescription drug addiction and alcohol. And and when I was a young person, uh, it was a really tough time. Uh, My mom would go away into the attic of our home uh, for weeks on end. 
Mm. Uh, we would not see her. Um, we would hear the liquor bottles dropping on the floor. Um, and she, uh, she. And what you? What did you think? What, what did your dad say? Well, my dad was. Uh, my dad uh, basically. Uh, I remember waking up one night in the middle of the night uh, and hearing my my mother pleading with my father not to put her into a, a psychiatric facility, uh, but he tried that uh, on a couple of occasions. I remember going to uh, the corner of a of a street in Pittsburgh and my father telling me to count up the number of, of uh, barred windows, uh, like the fourth or fifth barred window. And he said, that's where your mom is. So she was hospitalized. And did you look up at the window? And- I did. I didn't see her obviously, mm-hmm. but it was just, I mean, it was a little shocking to know that your mother was in a facility that had bars on it because they were concerned about her mental health. Uh, tried to commit suicide a couple of times. I remember again waking up in the middle of the night, and my, watching my grandmother and, and father walking my my mother around and around and around right, right outside my door to keep her awake long enough for the ambulance to get there. So it was a really tough time. And in 1963, uh, just before, uh, just after actually, just after uh, President Kennedy was killed, Mom walked out. Uh, she just left. Uh, it was pretty devastating for my sister and myself and my dad and. Uh, she got was your a, sister also adopted? No, she was. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she was she was born six years before I came into the family, and and my mom and, and dad had had a trouble having a second child. Mom, uh, there was a condition or something that happened, so she couldn't have any more children. So, uh, mom leaves, and uh, really scary situation. I mean, I remember I was thirteen years old. I remember my thirteenth birthday. I was supposed to go to my mother's new apartment. Um, and I had just had my eighth grade uh, graduation picture uh, photograph. And when I walked into this apartment um, to visit with my mom, she must have had a hundred of my photographs pa- taped to the wall. It was a very surrealistic, very frightening experience. And she was drunk. Um, and I left. I just, I bolted. I uh, just didn't want to deal with her. Several days later, she uh, actually on Christmas Day, 1963, she got on a train to go visit her brother. She was drunk um, in Philadelphia, here, uh, the great city of brotherly love. And on the way, she had sort of an experience. And at that point in time, she began the process of turning her life around. And as a result of that... When you she, say an experience, like a religious experience? Yeah, she, she realized that no matter how bad she had been, no matter how much difficulty she had caused uh, our family, that God still loved her. Uh, and somehow that gave her enough fortitude and courage uh, to tell her brother that she needed help and that she was prepared to accept help and that she wanted to turn her life around. She went to a treatment facility for a period of time. Uh, my parents remained separated for about three years while my mom was getting herself. She learned, taught herself how to drive. She hadn't driven before. She got a job, which she had never had before. Uh, she really became a completely different person. And was she in Pittsburgh then? You, so she Pittsburgh. lived near you. And yeah. did you see her during that period? Of I time? did. Um, it was decided that I would live with my dad and my sister would live with my mom. And we lived probably two or three blocks from one another. And I would go see my mom uh, every other weekend type of thing. Um, it was tough because dad's business was failing at the time. And, and he had essentially convinced my mother that I should go to this high school that he went to uh, and it was a fairly expensive proposition so he was selling things in order to get me that education Uh, and he taught me a valuable lesson about sacrifice and the importance of education did you know at the time that that was happening no well I didn't know uh, that he was doing that until I uh, there was a a, a place called the uh, Pittsburgh Athletic Association the PAA and it was a place where I used to go as a kid to bowl, they had a Saturday bowling league, and uh, our our family used to go there for Christmas, Easter dinners kind of thing. Uh, it was one of those places where you could, there was a gymnasium and a swimming pool, right. and it was it was a club, right? And you could go and you could get, you know order a cheeseburger and a cherry coke, and you'd just sign it your name and you the, the the membership number. So I remember going there one day and ordering a cherry coke and a cheeseburger and signing the card and the guy came back and said well you, you know your family's no longer a member here mm. dad had sold the membership and it was particularly important because it was his grandfather who founded that club who was one of the founding members of that organization so it obviously was very difficult for him to acknowledge 
the, my childhood home was sold. Uh, we moved into a very small apartment. Um, and I was having trouble. I was having trouble in, in school. Uh, in eighth grade, I was uh, kicked out of school uh, briefly for um, <laughs> telling, a, uh, telling a nun to go to hell, uh, which is probably not the best place to yeah, tell a nun to go that to. Seems, that seems like impolitic. Yeah, it was. Well, I, I was right. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I was arguing on behalf of my classmates because we weren't being treated fairly. Uh, but I went a little over the top, I think. Um, <laughs> and, and so uh, uh, Sister Mary Peter sent me home. Uh, that was a long, long trolley ride to my dad's office to tell him I'd been kicked out of eighth grade. And he then, probably thought it was in politic, too. Huh? Yeah, he did. Uh, I, I, you know, looking back on it, I couldn't realize, I didn't realize at the time, I thought, boy, he's pretty calm about this. Uh, so obviously somebody had picked up the phone and called him in advance. I so see. He, he was prepared for my, for my visit. Um, so, sounds like a leave it to beaver episode yeah, it, it was it was it was and i'm i'm probably eddie and wally and beef all, all put together um and so uh went to high school and my dad's high school and it was a academically much more rigorous than what i had been ex- been exposed to before and i just had a really hard time and i remember my sophomore year i just i was ready to give up i i, I just i had I, I flunked exams and it was a mess, and all of it was at a time when mom, dad separated. Things were yeah. not not great, and then all of a sudden, mom decided to move back with dad. My sister was going to get married, and they decided it was important for them to be a couple again for my sister. Uh, and they rented a little house, and we became a family again. And the next semester, I was on the honor roll. Uh, and all of this, David, has significance to me as we deal with uh, issues of addiction. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, there are a lot of life lessons there. And yeah. you must run across, especially you're doing a lot of, you know, obviously in your role uh, mm-hmm. as secretary, you're traveling in rural America. And uh, this opioid crisis is, is, is rampant. You see a lot of that. I mean, and, and you see a lot of alcoholism. You see a lot of drug use. And you see a lot of families. There's a statistic... I think the Kaiser Foundation said that 44% of Americans know someone who's addicted to opioids. I mean, that's amazing statistic. Yeah, frightening. And there are millions of people suffering from uh, addiction. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm so supportive of, uh, of uh, Hillary Clinton, because she was sensitive enough as she traveled around Iowa and New Hampshire at the beginning of this campaign to actually realize and appreciate that she was hearing these stories over and over and over again in different communities in different locations. And it is particularly difficult for rural America because the work in rural America is very physical. So you have a greater chance and risk of the injury, the strain. That introduces you to opioids. Exactly. Yeah. And then when you get hooked, you'd like to be able to get treatment and help, but there, but 76% of the shortages of that kind of help are all in rural areas. And so you, there's no place for you to go. Uh, or if you have to go someplace, it's 50 miles or 100 miles from where you live. And it really speaks, I think, uh, to an emerging issue that, that the next administration and future administrations will deal with, which is a rebuilding and restructuring of the public health system in this country. So if you're dealing with pandemics, um, Zika, Ebola, whatever, uh, or addiction, you need to have a public health system in place to provide you know, very basic uh, assistance and basic information and access to basic services. In many parts of the country, that doesn't exist because we have sort of demonized all things public, you know, public schools, public education, public health, public safety. Uh, it, it has been a concerted effort over a long period of time. And I believe that eventually we're beginning to turn the corner on this. I think people are beginning to realize that uh, that public is not a, you know, it's not a four letter word. Uh, it's, it's an important concept. Uh, and I, I think this current administration, the President Obama's administration, has, I think, begun the slow um, process of reconnecting people in a way uh, to some of the important aspects of government. We've also, we, we've also uh, I think, not, not just over the period of time that government has been demonized, but forever, uh, we have uh, demonized um, mental illness. We have treated addiction as a character flaw, uh, and um, that continues to be. These continue to be struggles. We haven't crossed the. We haven't crossed that, you know, important sort of 
threshold where people are willing to say, you know, mental illness is like any other illness, and people shouldn't be ashamed to come forward and um, and do something about get help the help that they need. You know, I I've talked about this a lot on this podcast, and I'm sure I've talked to you about it. But my dad committed suicide when I was 19, and uh, he was a psychologist, but he could he didn't feel even though I'm sure he recognized in himself the symptoms of depression, he didn't feel like he could step forward and get the help uh, that he needed. And um, so we have to rebuild the public health system, but we also have to rethink how we approach um, these illnesses. No, that's that's absolutely correct. And one of the things that I always will feel badly about is that as my mom was going through this process, I was very judgmental. I was a kid, so it, it's sort of I, I give myself a break in a certain sense. Yeah, you should. But I thought, you know, geez, mom, you know, just buck it up here, um, stop drinking. You know, it should be a simple thing. Just make the decision to turn your life around. Much more difficult than that. It is a disease. It it, it is, an, and I and I had a very scary experience that reinforced this when I became older. Uh, after 14 years of sobriety, my mom finally uh, had brain cancer. And I remember one of the last days I was with her, uh, I was in my mid-30s, the cancer had impacted her on this particular day to the point where she acted and talked exactly as she did when she was drinking. Mm. And it, it, it generated such an incredible fear in me that I literally went to bed and actually put the sheet uh, over my head because I was so fearful of that person. And, but it reinforced the fact that this is not a character flaw. This right. is a disease. This is an illness just like cancer, just like diabetes, just like everything else. And we absolutely stigmatize it. We absolutely believe, make people feel as if they, are, they can't talk about it, nor can their family members talk about it. And it's particularly true in rural areas where privacy is important. Yeah. Um, so it is absolutely part of this uh, effort to try to get people to understand you got to talk about it. Somebody has to talk about it. Otherwise, what's going to happen is that person's going to reach that point, that fork in the road, and it's going to make the decision, the, the, the tragic and fatal yes. decision. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, and you want to be in a position that when they are at that fork in the road, that when they decide to do, as my mom did, to turn their life around, that they have all of the support necessary. They've got the treatment. They have the community of support. They've got the AA meetings. They've got the faith base, whatever it is, that surrounds them and provides the help. Because, you know, without it, it's really it's hard to do. a long, dark tunnel. It's yeah. really hard to do. So you went, uh, I know you, then you went off to, to college. Went uh, off to college, yep. Uh, fortunate enough to get into a good college. And, uh, boy, what a, <laughs> really changed my life. Um, two things happened my first year in college. Uh, one was I made the decision never to be involved in elected um, office uh, because I got... Uh, Absolutely slaughtered running for president uh, president of the uh, of the freshman class. I got 18 votes. There were 20 guys on my on my hall. I only got 18 votes. You know why? Uh, you needed a good consultant. I did. I did. I, I, I always, I've always told you <laughs> you needed a good consultant. Well, and I didn't have Christy at the time. Yes. Uh, and, but I probably did, more important. More importantly, yes. yeah. Uh, but I met Christy at college, and uh, you know we had a, a relationship that uh, spanned our entire college time there. Um, and made an incredible difference. Had a hard time getting into law school. Very hard time. Um, and Did got, you guys get married right after college? No. Um, uh, decided, uh, we, got in, we got engaged. Uh, my, my dad, uh, again, business wasn't doing well, but uh, I was home for spring break in my senior year. And he called me into the living room of our little... Um, duplex that we were living in and he said uh, I've got something uh, I want to give you and he had a finger ring that his father had given him uh, and it had been a tie clasp at one point but it was a fairly nice looking diamond in this ring and he gave it to me and he says now I want you to give this to, to, to Christy he said I, I don't care what happens to the two of you I want her to have this um, so I went to my mom I said dad's giving me this ring what am I supposed to do with it my grandmother had just passed away and she had left a couple hundred bucks so my mom took that money and the ring and basically created an engagement ring. Um, I called my father. Which you took as a hint. Huh? Well, uh, yeah, it, it took me a while <laughs> to figure it out. Um, 
but my dad was obviously there a lot, yeah. for, a lot sooner than I was. Um, uh, and so uh, I called my dad on April 15th, 1972. I remember the date because it was the day I got the last letter from the nine law schools that I had applied to. Uh, I got accepted at one, the, the acceptance letter. I called my dad and I said, Dad, I got accepted to law school. And he said with a relatively tired voice, I don't know where we're going to get the money, but we'll find a way. Next day, he passed away. Uh-huh. Uh, veterans benefits, Social Security, student loans, uh, eventually a public school teaching salary from Christie. Uh, all of those combined. So when people say, you know, less government, I say without government, I would not have had anywhere near the life I've had. Um, we're going to take a short break. And uh, we'll be right back. After the law school, you guys went back to Christie's hometown. And t- talk a little bit about her and her family and what led you back to, to, Mount, Pl- uh, to, to Mount Pleasant, Iowa. Well, the, you know, I, I had an opportunity to visit Christie's a small town, uh, Mount Pleasant, a town of 8,000. Dad was a, a small-town lawyer, uh, successful uh, had a nice law practice right across the street from the courthouse. Courthouse was right next to the main square of the town. It was just an idyllic place. Uh, and Christy had this uh, wonderful experience growing up. Uh, uh, you know, the only... Uh, How can you of, not in a town called Mount Pleasant? Right, right, except there were no mountains. That was the, that's <laughs> part of the problem. But it was pleasant. It was very pleasant. Um, loved her dad. Uh, Christy had lost her mom uh, just before she uh, graduated from high school uh, to cancer. Uh, so she was helping uh, raise her um, younger brother, Dick. Her older brother, Tom, uh, had already gone off and had gone to law school and was practicing law in Wisconsin. And her dad needed somebody to come in and help him with the law practice. He had made the decision that there was an opportunity there for a young lawyer in Mount Pleasant. Uh, and we, were tr- we had made the decision that we were going to go into a small community, that we were going to live either in western Pennsylvania, where I grew up, or we were going to live in Iowa. Uh, what really broke the tie um, was a letter that uh, Christie's father wrote in his own handwriting on yellow legal uh, paper, seven pages of this is why you should come to Mount Pleasant. Huh. Uh, and it was sweet. I mean, it was, it, you know, he broke down the law practice. He said how much he had made that year, what he could afford to pay. And he was convinced it would be in our best interest. Uh, and I think he genuinely wanted to be close to his daughter and with, for multiple reasons. So we made the decision to go back. Probably uh, had you at page four. Huh? Yeah, well, I, he had me at page one. and I, <laughs> uh, uh, So I studied for the, uh, the bar exam on my own. Didn't take a bar course there. I just did, studied my own. I took the bar. I passed it. Uh, and in those days, you found out and the day you, the last day of the exam, you found out the next, that night whether you passed or failed. Uh, so I was able to start practicing law uh, in, in, in 75, June of 75. And the problem, though, when you move to your wife's hometown is that you are your wife's husband. You are Tom Bell's son-in-law. You are a person without a name. Um, and so I figured, well, I really have to do something here for people to know who I am. Um, so I decided I was going to take on a challenge of raising money for an athletic complex that, uh, was in great need for the community and for the kids of the community. But we had failed to pass bond issue at time after time after time. And so I came home one night, and I said, uh, "I said, Christy, I, this is terrible." I said, "We got these kids are taking showers in places of scalding water, and the football field's crappy. We really have to do something about this." I said, "I'm going to raise the money myself." And she looked at me, and she said, "You know, there are three rules of success here in Mount Pleasant, uh, and you need to understand what they are. First, you have to have been born here. Secondly, you have to be a Methodist, and third, it's uh, you absolutely have to be a Republican." You were born in Pennsylvania. Uh, you uh, are a Catholic and a Democrat. Good luck. Um, but I didn't know this enough. Is these, these, I, we should point out that these sirens are not <laughs> sound effects <laughs> no. uh, to uh, accompany your story. No. But they are the Philadelphia police or fire uh, on their rounds here. Yeah, making sure people get to where they have to go. It's great. Uh, so uh, the great thing about being a young person... Uh, is that you don't know enough to know that you can't do something. Uh, and that is just the, the beauty. And we see this in politics. We see this with these young people in politics. Yeah. They just don't know enough to know they can't do something. And that's the beauty of it. That's the passion of it. 
Uh, so off we went and uh, got a, young, a bunch of young people involved in this. We took over the local radio station, violated probably a million FCC rules because we kept the radio station on all night. I don't think we were supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was the Jerry Lewis of Mount Pleasant for a couple of days uh, where we encouraged people to call in pledges. And I had secured in advance. You know, by, by the way, it's funny you should say that because whenever I ask people who does Tom Vilsack remind you of, almost <laughs> invariably they say Jerry Lewis. So... <laughs> Uh, to hear you admit it now is, is really good. But anyway. So uh, uh, it was one of the most remarkable experiences of my life. I can still call up the feeling I had on Sunday night when we when we exceeded $200,000 in pledges, which at the time in 78 was an, a lot of money. A, a remarkable a amount. Small town. Small town. Nobody thought this was possible. Uh, what followed was months of additional donations by laboring guys. They came in. They said, give us a six-pack of beer. We'll... We'll work on Saturday. We'll work on on Friday night. We'll work, you know, we'll, we'll we'll build this thing volunteer basis. Corporations came in, gave money, and we ended up having this amazing facility for kids. And it was an incredible community building experience. Uh, and from that, I got a name. And then it was, you know, can you be the Chamber of Commerce president? Can you be the United Way chair? You know, all that kind of stuff. And then something incredibly tragic happened yeah. in your in your town. That's right. Uh, in fact, 30 years ago uh, this year, uh, Mayor King, who had been mayor for a considerable period of time, was in a council meeting one Wednesday night. Uh, and Ralph Davis, a disgruntled citizen who had been a former prisoner of war during World War II, uh, was upset about a sewer problem that had not been fixed by the city. And he came into the city council chambers with a loaded gun. Uh, he seriously wounded two council members and shot and killed the mayor. Uh, it was... And still today, a very devastating thing to happen in a small town. It's unbelievable. But it, sadly, these you know these gun incidents have become more prevalent. But back then, oh, it was very it was, yeah. it was uh, even more shocking. It was unbelievable. And uh, we raised money. National news. Yeah, it was. We raised money for a fountain in the middle of the town square in his honor. And I helped to lead that fundraising effort. And his father, Iliff King... Um, was not happy with the way the city was being governed after his son was killed. And so he came into my law office one day and started to cry about that and asked if I would consider running for mayor. Now, ironically, Christy and I had just completed working on Senator Biden's first presidential campaign. And 1988. We, 1988. And we were just incredibly supportive of then-Senator Biden, thought he was a then and still do today, an incredible, wonderful human being. And he had, our job was to try to get young people involved in the process, and he had this video that we, we took to show kids that in which he basically quoted someone from Greek philosophy about the penalty for not getting involved is that people less qualified than you end up governing you. So when Eilith King came into the office, I thought, well, mm, what would Joe do? Uh, went home. And we should point out that this is Iowa, so... Yeah. This isn't when these presidential candidates come in. This isn't like a drive-by. This is like you get to know these people in a big way. You do. I'll never forget Joe Biden coming into our home. Um, uh, there were three matriarchs of the Catholic Church in Mount Pleasant, and they were all sitting on a love seat in our home. Uh, and Senator Biden comes in. The first thing he does, he scopes out the room, and he knows exactly where the power base is. <laughs> and he gets down on one knee. And he starts talking to these women. I'm relatively sure those women would have walked on hot coals for him after that. He, uh, he had the same effect on, I introduced him to this uh, sister, Rosemary Connolly, who's a sister of mercy who runs Misericordia, which is where my daughter lives. Uh, wonderful community in Chicago for people with mm-hmm. developmental disabilities. And uh, she literally now gives me letters to deliver to, she says, her brother Joe. Uh, so uh, he, those are a lifetime of habits there. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, so anyway, uh, because of that experience and because of his uh, direction and an example and inspiration, uh, uh, my kids said, don't do it, Dad, you're going to get hurt. I didn't want them to think I was going to be hurt running for office. So we ran, I ran. and, and So we, you were able to shed the scars of your freshman defeat in college? And I, I was, I was, <laughs> uh, though I honestly didn't expect to win because fairly You Republican. never expect to win. Well, this time I, I, was, I I've ridden this <laughs> road with you. But. So um, 
it was great. But I was really unprepared for this. Uh, the night I was elected uh, mayor for the first time, uh, I was being interviewed by Greg Spinner, who was a local radio guy, and he said to me, are you ready for this? And I gave uh, what, what you would have been very proud of me. It was a very thoughtful answer. It was something along the lines, well, I want to get to know the council members. Uh, I want to reach out to them. I want to study the budget. I want to make sure that uh, I, I, you know, I'm ready. And by January, I'll be ready to take the oath of office, at which point Greg paused, looked at me, and he said, January, you're mayor tomorrow. <laughs> and indeed, I was mayor tomorrow. Uh, because of the way the law was. I, that's how unprepared it was. I didn't realize I was going to be sworn in the next day as mayor. Now, you, you um, I, 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 I tell your story, and I, I probably embellish it in places as political consultants do, but uh, you served a term, and then you weren't going to run again, right? Right. I served two terms. Uh, two terms. Yeah, I served two terms. And then at the end of the second term, I said, you know, look, it's time for somebody to come in and new ideas. That's and so eight forward. years? Uh, it's four. Four. Two-year two, 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 two terms. Two year yeah. terms. Uh, and uh, no one uh, was particularly interested in running except for Mort Whitney. And Mort uh, <laughs> was always late. Uh, and he was late getting his petition in. And so there was nobody on the ballot. So people could write in whoever they wanted to write in. And uh, it turned out, I, I think there were like 1,200 votes. And I got over 90% of the 1,200 write-in votes. So I was elected to a third term. And I thought, well, this is a problem. Uh, this is a lifetime job I now have, <laughs> potentially. And so I have to think of plan B. Did you see that coming? I didn't. I, I, you know, I, I, I didn't think people were really excited about Mort being, being, uh, being married. He would always be, I mean, literally, Mort would always be late to everything, you know, whether it was a party or whether it was an appointment. The one thing you could count on for Mort Whitney is he'd be five to ten minutes late. This, this, uh, this, this is in no way to slight Mount Pleasant, but this has a little Mayberry feel to it here. <laughs> it, was, it, it, was, it was, you know, it was great. I mean, <laughs> and it's the kind of place that you like being from because people care about you. And so I decided to run for the state senate um, and uh, was in a tough three, three-way race. Uh, Republican district. Republican right? district. Well, it was uh, the, the, the northern part of it was very Republican. The southern part was really Democrat. And the, in the middle was where the battle was going to be won. And the Republicans did a very smart thing. They got a very strong, well-known uh, restaurant owner, uh, Dave Heaton, to run. Uh, and he was very strong. He was from the northern part of the district and well-known in the middle part of the district. And then they got they they convinced a union guy who had run as a Democrat uh, two years before to run as an independent. So they the theory I think was that the union guy would uh, would siphon off a few Democratic votes from Lee County and Dave would do well in Henry and Washington County. Well, we worked incre- incredibly hard, and the folks that asked me uh, were instrumental. Uh, uh, along with Christy and a, a small group of, of volunteers. And we did the parades, and we knocked on doors, and we raised enough money to be able to do some advertising. And it turned out on election night that um, that I won, and I won pretty handily. Um, and I was actually, at that point in time, the 26th Democrat elected to the Iowa Senate, which meant that the Democrats would maintain control of the Senate. Uh, so it was exciting. Um, and I, I served... Uh, two years, and because of reapportionment, I had to run again. Uh, but I, I ran unopposed, uh, which I think was indicative. That's, that's always good for your chances. It's always good, yeah. It's mm-hmm. tough to lose a race like that. And um, and embarrassing if you do, by oh, the way. Oh, yeah, very embarrassing, yes. very embarrassing. And um, and midway through that second term, um, I had just a, you know, I, I realized I wasn't a legislator. Um, and I have this belief that you're either an executive type guy or you're in a legislative type person and an executive guy likes to make decisions likes to get things done a legislature likes to compromise likes to work through the process and they're both very important but i just didn't have the patience in a sense to be a legislative guy i looked at all of the work that i was doing and all the credit that others were getting and i'm going I, I, this is not fair it's not right so uh i decided to leave politics and i probably would have left politics were it not for yet another tragedy. Um, and uh, our son, Jess, was graduating from high school. We were going to have a family get-together. Uh, Tom Bell, Christie's brother, came down from Wisconsin, brought his family. It was a wonderful thing. We, um, we had a dinner for, in honor of Christie's dad, and we gave a, a small scholarship at the local college in his name. It was a celebration of family and of our sons uh, reaching an th- important threshold. 
during that process, I had announced, I, prior to that, I announced I was leaving, leaving the Senate. My brother-in-law got me in the corner of, the, of our dining room, and he started just as only Don Bell could. He said, you, he said, you cannot leave politics. He said, in fact, what you should do is you should run for governor. And I looked at him like, I said, well, you, I run for governor? What are you, crazy? I just told people I'm leaving. He said, well, you can't leave. You've got to run for governor. I said, Tom, we haven't elected a Democrat in a long time in the state. Nobody knows me. 32 years, in fact. Yeah, it was a long time. I'm from the corner of the state. I mean, it, what are you, crazy? And that would have been it, except that the next day Tom went out, and uh, because of an arrhythmia in his heart, uh, his heart stopped, and he died suddenly and tragically. I mean, it was just an incredible, shocking thing. He, he was one of the most, he was one of the greatest people I've ever met in my life. He, he was the kind of guy that make, he made you feel as if you could do anything. Um, and it was it just, and even to this day, I, I don't know that I've ever met anybody who could celebrate the Christmas holiday in the way that Tom Bell celebrated. And so I miss him, and I know we all miss him. But because he had that conversation with me, I, I thought, well, there's a reason for this, and I'm going to dedicate myself um, to giving it a shot. Um, and were it not for... Teresa Vilmain and David Axelrod and <laughs> Christy Vilsack and Sally Peterson and a whole bunch of other folks uh, and a person by the name of Hillary Clinton, I wouldn't be sitting here doing this podcast. I don't know where I'd be, but I, I, I wouldn't be sitting here. But that combination I don't know if of that's people, a good thing or a bad thing. No, that's a good thing. <laughs> it's a combination of those people allowed me to do something that a lot of people didn't expect would happen. In, yeah, it was a quite a – those were – you know, two come from behind wins in the primary and the general first Democrat elected yeah. in, uh, as I said, in, in 32 years. I want to talk a little bit about the governorship and the things that you did there, uh, because there were some things you did there that, you know, projecting forward were uh, still speak to the things that we're grappling with as a country mm-hmm. today. One has to do with uh, energy mm-hmm. and you you really pushed hard to make uh, Iowa um, kind of the one of the wind capitals of wind energy capitals. Well, I realized in my law practice I represented farmers during the farm crisis of the 80s and realized how, how, how troublesome it was that they only had one option. They could grow crops and that's all they could do or they could feed the crops to livestock. That was it. And there needed to be a much more diverse economy in rural areas to give these guys a shot at being able to keep their farm. Uh, and one way to do that is to create new ways to use the land. And one way to do that is to put a windmill on top of that acre. Uh, you get rent for the windmill. Somebody's got to make those windmills. Somebody's got to fix them. Somebody's got to put them together. All of that creates jobs, and that helps to support off-farm income that is, is important for rural areas. So as governor, worked very closely with Greg Abel and the folks at MidAmerican Energy and basically challenged them. Uh, first of all, sort of threatened them by saying I was going to deregulate the utility industry in, the, in, in Iowa, which got their attention. And then they said, well, what do you really want, Governor? And I said, what I want is I want you folks to commit yourself to clean energy. I want you to make a significant commitment. So what they did is they committed to 1,000 megawatts of wind energy. Uh, they committed to a cleaner uh, coal-burning operation than they had before. And they committed not to raise uh, rates for 10 years. Uh, it was a great deal for consumers, and it, as it's turned out, it was a great deal for the company because they have gone way beyond that 1,000 megawatts. They're now, I think, on the fourth or fifth thousand megawatts. And just today I read uh, of a companion uh, utility in Iowa that's going to build a $1 billion wind farm. Mm-hmm. So it has revolutionized our energy mix, and it was part of an overall strategy to sort of rebuild and, and restructure the economy in Iowa. And it was successful because for the first time in 70 years, we reversed the outmigration of people from Iowa because there was activity, there was interest, there was something new and exciting going on. Got to take another short break. We'll be back with Tom Vilsack. You talked about the outmigration of people from Iowa. The other thing that you did, I, I was sitting in your legislative chamber when you addressed your legislature and made the case for why Iowa ought to welcome immigrants, uh, which was an incredibly powerful thing, but politically fraught. 
and, and you know, we can see where the immigration issue is today and how it's being uh, deployed or weaponized by Donald Donald Trump. Uh, why did you do that, and 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 how difficult was that in the aftermath? Well, I put together a strategic planning group uh, to take a look at what Iowa should be and needed to be ten years hence. Uh, it was a twenty year, year two thousand or twenty ten twenty ten vision visioning program, and they came back and said, "Look, we've got a problem with workforce. We need people. We need younger people. We're losing our young people." Iowa's a very old state. It is. It is. It is. In fact, uh, you know, the statistic I will often quote is that in nineteen hundred, Iowa had more people living in it than California and Florida combined. From 1900 to 2000, it was the only state in the country that didn't at least double its population. Only one that didn't double its population. So there was a, a worker shortage. Uh, and we also had had the experience in Mount Pleasant in the 70s when uh, the boat people uh, from Southeast Asia were invited to Iowa by then-Governor Ray. The theory being that these were people who were suffering, these were people who, who needed help, and Iowa was going to embrace them. There is an incredibly important lesson in what we did with the boat people compared to what this immigration debate is today. With the boat, boat people, basically what we did is we invited them. We said, we want you. And we not only invited them, but we created an, a community that accepted them. We, we had communities accept the responsibility of welcoming these people into their community, finding a place for them to worship, finding a place for them to live, finding a place for them to have a job, making sure their kids learned the language. All of those things that, that created a sense of community and comfort, we did, which we have not done uh, for a lot of the folks who have uh, immigrated to the United States, either, either legally or, 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 or not. So what we did uh, in an effort to try to create, recreate that type of atmosphere is we created a thing called New Iowan Centers. And the theory behind the New Iowan Center was this was going to be a physical location where somebody new to Iowa could come in. And we were getting people from Bosnia. We were getting people from, from uh, Somalia. We were getting people from uh, Latin America that they could come in. And in their language, they could learn enough to basically find out where do I live? Where do my kids go to school? How do I get access to health care? Uh, who's going to take care of me if I'm sick, et cetera, et cetera. And these new island centers were very, very successful. But there was a political backlash because people characterized what we were doing. They, they, they characterized it as this huge influx of people who were going to take people's jobs. And it's the same concept that, that Trump is, is articulating now. What Trump doesn't recognize and what uh, folks in Iowa didn't fully appreciate is that the, the new wave of immigrants is the energy and the passion and the folks who are willing to sacrifice and work incredibly hard at doing a lot of the work that none of us want to do to be able to ensure that their kids have a better future. And that's what keeps the uniqueness about America, I think, alive, is that opportunity for people to constantly come into the U.S., sacrifice, work hard, do the, the difficult physical labor of, of work, and in doing so, create this second generation and third generation of just really committed people. I remember a story you told me in the midst of this, that you had a visit from the President of the United States, who at that time was uh, George W. Bush. Well, he was running for office. Oh, he was running for president. Running That's right, for it was office. 2000. Yeah. He was running for office, and I invited him up He was to the governor of Texas, so you gov knew him as a governor. I knew him as a governor. He was doing, it was the, the Sunday before the caucus, he was doing an ABC uh, Sunday show downstairs in the uh, uh, first floor of the governor's mansion, and I invited him up afterwards for coffee. And when he came up, he said, you know, Gov, he said, you, you got a problem here. And I said, what is that? He said, well, I, I, when I do a lot of functions here, he said, a lot of Latinos, Hispanics come to my gatherings because they know my record in Texas. He said, but, they, but there's like, it's like oil and water. So they're separated, they're physically separated. I said, you got a problem here. And I said, well, Governor, I said, we have a problem. Because that's not just Iowa, that's, that's the country. And what I have learned since then um, in my various experiences is we don't know how to communicate with each other. We, you and I can talk the same language. We, we, we can talk English. We can talk whatever the language is. We can talk that. But if, we don't, if I don't know where you come from, if I don't know your experiences, if I don't know your background, if I don't know the struggles that you've gone through, I'm going to interpret things differently. I'm going to put them through my sieve, through my screen. 
And I think the more you have experience with people from um, different races, different cultures, uh, different parts of the world, the more you are, are sensitive to understanding how to communicate more effectively and how to appreciate what they're saying to you. Um, and to me, that's why it's important to have workplaces that are diverse. To me, that's why it's important to have universities and colleges and schools that are diverse and why I'm troubled by the fact that we've slowly become more segregated and yeah. less yeah. integrated than we were 10, 15 years ago. The reason I raised that story uh, is because um, because Bush believed I think he believed what you believe, what, you, what you're saying and you know, we, we're so polarized that uh, you know, we don't. We ought to celebrate those things that we share, and and um, seems to me he deserves credit for that. He does, and we actually we brought a guy by the name of Richard Florida to Iowa. He had written a book called the The Rise of the Creative Class, and what he had done is he had surveyed all of the successful cities in America in terms of economic activity, and what he noticed about the most successful cities is they happen to be the most diverse. Uh, and that that diversity is what creates a climate of creativity and imagination, and we you can do it this way or you can do it that way, and it just fosters all of these new ideas and new opportunities. And I think Governor, then Governor Bush, President Bush understood that. He just, you know, frankly, he would have been so much better off instead of pushing the notion of privatizing Social Security as he did and and, and failing to do so. If he had focused his attention at that point in time on immigration, we might have been able to get it done. Uh, let's talk a little bit about contemporary politics, but we should set it up by saying in 2008, you you and, and Christie, who's frankly a better campaigner than you, uh, uh, worked very, very hard for uh, – I guess you were officially neutral in that – Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. You were no, running no, for no, president. No. You, you, yeah. you were all in for her. Oh, yeah. For, for, uh, all in. All in for, uh, I was thinking of 2004 Four. when you were in governor. Right. You were all in for Hillary mm-hmm. in that race. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Well, first and foremost, because I thought she... I don't ask that in a prosecutorial No, no, no. Way. First and foremost, because I thought she was prepared uh, from her experiences, having been in the White House and having been in the Senate, she was prepared to lead this country. And she had the right values. Secondly, there, there is the issue of loyalty. Uh, again, I would not have been governor but for the work and help that she provided uh, in critical times during my race in 1998 in terms of fundraisers in Washington, D.C. in the my summer. I remember this. You guys had some relationship well, dating back, right? Right, because Christie's brother, Tom, the, the one mm-hmm. who passed away, he shared office space with Hillary during the Nixon impeachment process. And they were be- both on the Judiciary Committee staff. Yeah, he was on the Senate staff, or she was on the Senate staff, he was on the House staff, and their job was to sort of communicate with one another. Uh, to make sure that everybody knew what everybody knew. Uh, and he just went on and on about this wonderful, amazing, incredible young woman he had met, Hillary Rodham, and, and we sort of kind of rolled, I, frankly, I kind of rolled my eyes. And then in 1992, when uh, President Clinton was running for office, I remember being in a rope line, and she was coming down the rope line. I thought, well, I'm going to test how, really, how much she knows about my brother-in-law, because I think he's just playing this up a little bit. And I said, hi, uh, I'm Tom Bell's uh, uh, brother-in-law. I didn't say hi. I'm Tom Bell's. I said hi. I'm Tom Bell's brother. Big smile, huge smile, laugh. Oh my, what a great guy. How's he doing? How's Greta? How are the kids? How's and it's like whoa. He actually did know her, and mm-hmm. uh, and and this is an important consideration because she didn't have to do what she did in 1998 because Tom, Tom passed away in '96, so it wasn't like you know he was still around and she. She did it out of loyalty to him, and that's an important thing to know about. She campaigned her. for you, and she can't. She did a fundraiser for me in Washington D.C. Uh, she did. Uh, she helped raise resources at the end of it when we were getting close, and she came out the weekend before the election to rally the troops. Those were three separate things that she didn't have any reason to do, given the nature of the the race or given the significance of Iowa. You know, it's none of that, right? None, there's no reason. To, there's she did it out of loyalty. Uh, and then she got to know me, and she did it because she thought, you know, this guy's got something on the ball. So to me, that's an important consideration for her, for any voter who's, you know, you know she says she's going to 
raise the minimum wage, says she's going to do child care, going to help with college expense. Can I really trust that? Well, yeah, you can, because she is extremely loyal to the people that she talks to and that she that she has a relationship with. Why is it? There are a million stories like this. Why why is it so hard for her to translate these qualities that in one-on-one encounters in rooms like in Iowa that are so common, small rooms where she's dealing with people on a much more personal basis. Why is it hard to translate that personality, that character into uh, larger settings? You know, know, I'm not an expert on any of this. Uh, I have this theory, and all it is is a theory. But there's an amazing book uh, that's, that's been out for a while called Quiet. And it's basically a book that talks about introverts and, and how introverts essentially have to adapt and adjust and how oftentimes they become leaders because of the ad- adaptation adjustment that they have to make. My sense is that when Hillary Clinton walks in a room, all of her energy is expended in that room as she listens, as she, as she uh, kind of under, tries to understand whatever it is we're imparting to her, whether it's a story of addiction or whether it's somebody lost their job, all of her pours out. And the intimate setting allows her to feel comfortable in that circumstance, to listen, to react, and, and to see the, the human side. Contrast that to her husband. When he walks into a room, all the energy from the rest of us, he absorbs. And he can be there forever. And I think it's just the difference between someone who's a bit more introverted and someone who's extroverted. And, and, and I think, you know, if you're an extrovert, you, you go into a room and everybody thinks you're the greatest thing in the world. But you're an introvert, you're going to create serious conversations with people. And that makes it a little bit harder. I, that's my thought. Though the challenge is that you don't get a chance to be in those small rooms when you reach this level of a campaign and you communicate primarily through television and you know as we sit here today she's going to be giving a convention speech tonight well by the time people hear this podcast we'll know how it goes but bill clinton spoke the other night in that auditorium and he turns an arena of 20,000 people into an intimate conversation very hard thing to do it's unfair she, to ask anybody else to do it. It's no, a talent. But it's she's, not, she's not particularly good in those settings. Well, she, you know what? She doesn't necessarily always... I mean, look, we, we, you can't have a perfect everything, all right? Here's what I know about her. You give her an opportunity to be president of the United States, there will be no one. I mean no one who's ever had that job that will work harder. Bar none. I, I am convinced of that. No one will try harder to solve problems that are that land on that desk than she will. I believe what's going to happen is that people are going to elect her and then she's going they'll see her work and they'll see her govern and they'll think, you know, I it's the same thing that happened in New York. She ran for the Senate was like, "Uh, oh, she's running for the Senate, you know, she's trying to move in here." Those people in New York State, upstate New York, they loved her. Why? Because she went there, she worked hard, she listened to farmers, she listened to the people in upstate New York, and they thought she was doing a great job. They liked what she was doing. You you actually know her as a fellow cabinet member. Uh, you're now the longest-serving member of Barack Obama's cabinet because you ended up well, <laughs> you, you two, you and Hillary Clinton were the two were two of the refugees from the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, in the Barack Obama cabinet. Talk about him and your your sense of him, and maybe how they're the same or how they're different. Well, uh, first of all, President Obama is an extraordinarily he's an extraordinary leader because he had the confidence in us and in himself and in his team to allow people who had been fiercely working against him during the primary to be part of his administration. And when that happens, what, what is created, at least from my perspective, is an equally fierce loyalty back. And you say, my gosh, this guy gave me this. He didn't have to do this. 
nobody in the normal. You know, while he was running in 2008, he was reading Team of Rivals, Doris Goodwin's incredible book about the Lincoln administration. And, of course, the title comes from the fact that Lincoln took yeah. all of his, uh, you know, a bunch of his rivals and they became his cabinet. And the same effect, uh, you know, generally you saw the same effect. Yeah, no, it, not an easy thing to do, right? The right thing to do, but not an easy thing to do. Here's what I love about President. I love his patience. He is an incredibly patient man. He knows where the country is headed, and he knows it a lot of times sooner than the rest of us. And he is patient enough to allow us, the rest of us, to catch up with him. He knows uh, the, 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 the trend. He knows where this country is headed. And we saw this uh, in his convention speech. He knows uh, that our best days are ahead of us. He is absolutely confident of that. He knows that he has done an incredible job, but there's, there's just so much more to do. Um, you know, as I watch the video uh, of th- that shows all of the tough decisions that he, well, not all, some of the tough decisions he had to confront, I leaned over to President Clinton. I was sitting next to President Clinton. I said, you know, you're the only guy in this auditorium that really understands what that video shows. None of us really appreciate how hard this job is. You know, we kind of think we know. Yeah. It is. A few people on the planet. What did President Clinton say? Well, he just, he just smiled. And, and I think he, you know, I think he agreed with me. Uh, you know, I, I remember clearly because that, there obviously was friction in 2008 between President Clinton and Senator Obama and the campaigns and so on. But as we were going through that horrible economic crisis, I remember after the midterm elections, President Clinton came in. We were trying to pass this very large and uh, uh, lame duck package that had to do with taxes and a whole bunch of stuff. He came in. They had an hour-long meeting. He went into the press room. President Obama said, I got to go see Michelle. Mm -hmm. And he took over the press room and, of course, masterfully made the case for the Obama program. But you get the sense that there is this very small fraternity, it won't be a fraternity anymore, perhaps, after this election, of people who understand the incredible pressures uh, and complexities of, of that job, and so I think that they forged a relationship around that. They did, and uh, and of course, uh, the, the amazing thing about Bill Clinton is that the, the, you know he he is convinced he can make everyone in the world like him. And you know, the, the, I think the classic example is his relationship with George H. W. Bush. Yeah, I mean, there's a relationship that could easily be strained, but it's not. There's a mutual. You mean because Clinton ended his political career? Right. Yeah. Right. Some people would take umbrage. Uh, yeah, and yeah. to you know, to to President Bush's credit, he was open to that relationship, and to President Clinton's credit, he he created the opportunity or took the uh, took advantage of the opportunity to create that relationship. Let me ask you, you, uh, you the, here are the sirens again, the, uh, and maybe this is the appropriate sound effect for this, uh, for, for me to ask you this as a Democrat. Rural America, which is your precinct, really, this is, what you've been, this is where you've been traveling for the last eight years as Agriculture Secretary, is, is deeply red. It's very polarized. Um, there's been a great deal of resistance to... President Obama, uh, there's a great deal of resistance now to Hillary Clinton. Uh, how does what changes that dynamic? Uh, if not in this election, do you do you anticipate that there's because right now these urban areas have become bastions of, and I mean suburban as mm-hmm. well, of, of metropolitan areas have become Democratic bases. The rural areas have been overwhelmingly. Republican. Democrats need to talk to rural voters. That's the first thing that has to happen. They, they can't write them off. They can't ignore them. They actually have to spend a little time talking to them. They have to basically start the conversation with thanks. Thank you for what you do for us. A recognition that in rural America, the food we eat, the water we drink, the energy we use, and a significant percentage of the military we rely on comes from rural America. 
And those folks in those rural communities do not believe that there is a recognition or appreciation on the part of Democrats for that contribution to the country. We got to talk to them first. We have to appreciate them. Third, we have to basically remind them of what government means and what government does. I think they ha- they think that government is only uh, one or two agencies. Uh, they think it's a regulator. Uh, they think it's someone. Uh, who is proposing and suggesting to limit and restrict certain rights that they find important. But they don't think of Including gun ownership. Gun ownership, for sure. They don't think of government in terms of the home loan that's provided through government that otherwise would never have been available but for government. They don't think of the clean water treatment facility that's financed through government. They don't think of the electricity that is paid for through government. They don't think of access to broadband when you can't make a business case for broadband, but because of government assistance and help, you have access to that 21st century infrastructure. They don't think of all of that because we never market what we do. We never tell them. We never bring them into the, into the discussion about what government does. I can't tell you how many times uh, people have been surprised about how much resource gets invested in these, in, in these rural areas. Nobody is aware of it, but it is an incredible amount of, of investment that's being done. So if you go out to rural areas as a Democrat and you basically say, I'm here to listen, I'm here to say thank you, I'm here to kind of educate you on what we're doing for you and with you, you're not going to win those rural areas, but you're not going to get killed in those rural areas. And here's the importance of that in this election. I think there's a unique opportunity for Democrats today in this election to have that conversation because of the very high level of dissatisfaction, concern uh, about Trump. People just don't think he represents really their approach, their... their the, the, his notion of this country is not what I hear in rural areas. His notion of, of division is not what I hear from a lot of good people in these small towns. So I think there's an opening here to have that conversation where it may have been more difficult with a Romney. It may have been more difficult with a McCain. It may have been even more difficult with a George Bush, both. But with this guy, then people are saying, well, you know, I really am uncomfortable with him. So what's my option? Well, if we don't speak to him, there is no option. But if we do speak to them, some of these people go, you know what, I'm going to give these folks a try. I'm going to, I'm going to give them a shot. Uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to see, what, see what happens. I'm going to be open to this relationship. Even though there's some deep resistance to Hillary. Even though there's deep resistance to Hillary because now we're in a position to basically say, to, she listens. This guy doesn't listen. He listens to himself. He talks to himself. He listens to himself. She at least is willing to listen to you. Now, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, I'll tell you. The addiction and mental illness discussion that she's had in this campaign is a direct result of her listening to people in small towns. Her campaign to revitalize and rebuild the rural economy is directly related and very specific in terms of details related to her listening to people in rural areas. So there's evidence that she's listening, right? There's evidence and then there are people like myself who can validate, and her husband who can validate, that, yeah, this is the real deal. She's going to listen to you. She's going to care about you. So, so, it's, so it's not just her election. To me, what's even as important, equally important, is the impact on Senate races in some of these key states. If you speak to rural voters, you can squeeze those margins in Wisconsin and Illinois and Ohio and Pennsylvania and New Hampshire, and you can have more success in the Congress and in the Senate races. You can also have success on the margins in some of these House races, and you can also maybe elect a few more state reps and a few more state senators, so that over time you begin to create the opportunity for reapportionment that's fairer and more balanced, and instead of four and eight years of progressive leadership, we're now talking about the potential of decades. One last thing, as you watch this convention uh, does it concern you? That I think it's been very well done, but the messaging has not really been aimed at uh, at rural voters. Uh, do you see any messaging here? There was some on the on the epidemic of drugs. 
Well, and, and President, if you look at President Clinton's remarks, mm-hmm. he made reference. Uh, last night, President Obama made a reference uh, to farmers. Um, it, it's not over the top. It's not, you know. But it's there. It's there. And I think uh, the campaign is smart enough to understand the opportunity. And the great thing about it is it's not going to cost a lot. It's not going to, it's not like mm-hmm. you have to have millions of volunteers and millions of dollars and every. It just requires organization and structure and um, occasionally surrogates and occasionally Tim can go out. He, he can Tim talk can, he, yes. Tim Kane can talk to these people very easily. These are his people. Yeah. So I know you were, uh, you were on that short list for VP. I, see, uh, I, I, I would suspect that you're going to end up here somewhere continuing in your public service. <laughs> but I don't want to speculate on that. I don't want to ask you to speculate on it. I just want to thank you for the service that you've rendered and for standing up for, um, for the idea that politics and public service is meaningful and, and is a calling. Well, Robert Kennedy in 1968 was quoted uh, often when he quoted George Bernard Shaw when he said, some people look at things as they are and say why, and others who dream never thinks it never were and say why not i think that's what politics is i think that's what democrats say they say why not and that's what's moving this country forward um i'll tell you i am incredibly proud to be a democrat today in that can't watching that convention and taking a look at the people in that in that hall the diversity the 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 messaging the the concerns that have been expressed the speeches that have been given I leave Philadelphia just immensely proud of my party uh, and of my candidate, and uh, and I'm looking forward to, as I say, hauling out the trash or doing the dishes or whatever it takes to, to make sure she gets, uh, gets elected. Tom Vilsack, great to be with you as always. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. 